0: Tonight's New Testament reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. God, you've been with us the whole time. And now we're asking you to shine through your words, words that have endured. You've caused them to endure for thousands of years, words that are living words, words that have turned us from death to life. So feed us, won't you? In Christ's name, amen. Well, this evening, we're going to begin a series that will run us uh, up through Easter in the New Testament Gospel of Mark. And we're calling it uh, In His Steps. And by that, we basically mean we want to look at who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. Very simply, who Jesus is And what it means to follow him. Now, think back to the last time you played follow the leader. Now, for some of you, it may have been this year. For some of you, it may have been 40 years ago. But you remember how you win that game. You're following the leader, and they're taking you wherever they want you to want to go. And you're watching them move, and you're mimicking their steps, right? So you got to watch very closely every step, every move, every motion they make. And if for one moment you begin to think, you know, I think they're going to go this way. If I were them, I would do this. You lose, right? You get kicked out of the game because you've made a mistake. Well, in some ways, this is what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples have a particular view of who they think Jesus is and what he came to do. And Mark, in the first half of the book, speaks about who Jesus is, correcting that vision. The second half of the book, he talks about what Jesus came to do. And in this passage, we're in, it's a bridge between those two things together. Now, Mark, or John Mark, was a Jewish Christian. His mother owned a home that the apostles used to meet at regularly. And tradition tells us that he was Peter's assistant, the apostle Peter, and also his secretary. In fact, uh, one of the church fathers that lived just uh, about a generation after the apostles told us this. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. And Mark writes at a time where following Jesus means a, a high cost, a high price. It's during a time when Nero is Caesar and he's persecuting Christians. We know this from one of Rome's own historians, Tacitus. This is what he tells us, that the people called Christians were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame and were used as nighttime lamps. So this is a time, Mark is writing a Gospel at a time where Christians are suffering greatly for following Jesus. And so, we have before us this theme of suffering and trying to keep a relationship going with God. And if you've tried to do that, you know it's one of the hardest things. In fact, one of the primary reasons why people either don't start a relationship with God or continue a relationship with God is because of what they believe about suffering. It's the very question that leads them, I would say a primary question, of whether or not they can begin to consider a relationship with God. You know, if God is good, why would these things happen in my life, other people's lives? And so this is a very important question that we're looking at this evening. How do I reconcile who God is with what it means to follow Him? And I want to look at it just through two uh, simple points. And that is, first of all, let's look at the kind of Messiah Jesus is. And I'll define that in a moment. And then after that, what it means to follow him. So we'll look at those two things together. First of all, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Our passage begins where Jesus asks the question of his followers, Who do they say I am? Right? He's taking a poll. What do the crowds say about who I am? And the answer they get is, well, some of of them think that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. That was Jesus' cousin who was a prophet, who was martyred. Some think you're just a prophet. They're both wrong. He then looks at his disciples and he says, who do you think I am? And by God's good wisdom, Peter says, you are the Christ now, by that, he's not informing Jesus of his last name. What he's doing is he's talking about a title. Christ means God's great king or Messiah. God reveals this to Peter. Now, if I ask you in this room, what is a father? Or what is a president? There would be, you know, variations in what we'd say, but there would be some core things that we all agree on. Now, when you would ask the disciples in that time, what is the Messiah? There would be some core things that they would say. They would say the Messiah is God's great King. He's going to come in glory. He's going to come in power. And He's going to kick out Israel's oppressors at this time Rome. That's what the Messiah is. They would have never expected to hear that the Messiah will be rejected by His people subjected to a humiliating death and be crucified on a cross. They would have never thought that. It would have been shocking to hear that. And yet, this is what Jesus tells them. In fact, He tells them three different times, Mark records, because it was so hard to believe. I mean, it would be akin to you waking up tomorrow morning and reading in the paper that Hillary Clinton had joined the Tea Party or that Ted Cruz had decided he wanted to be Bernie Sanders' vice president, right? You would say, this isn't going to happen. We're going to be shocked by this. They were shocked by what Jesus said. It didn't compute. And so Peter, being the one that never holds back, pulls Jesus to himself, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. I mean, you just got to love this picture. You know, Peter rebuking the Son of God. Come here for a second. You know, pulls him over. Listen, this is not going to happen. You are off on this. You know, you're not going to be crucified. You're not going to die. I don't know what you're talking about with raised from the dead. But this isn't how the plan is going to go. Jesus, in turn, looks at Peter, but he also looks at the other disciples too, because he knows what's in Peter's head is also in their head. And he says, you heard it read, Turning in and seeing his disciples. Jesus rebuked Peter and said, "'Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, "'but on the things of man.'" Now, you have maybe rebuked some people in your life, right? Maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe your child. I doubt you've said, get behind me, Satan. Maybe you've come close. Maybe you said, you little devil, get out of here. Now, why does Jesus say something so harsh? Well, first of all, he's not literally saying to Peter, you're the devil. Rather, what he's connecting is when he was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil, And the primary temptation that the devil was bringing to him was this. Listen, you can still be the Messiah and not suffer. You can still walk this path to glory, but not go through the cross. That's what the devil was tempting him to do. And you hear it's the very same thing in the mouth of Peter and in the thoughts of the apostles. That's why he says this. They believed that the Messiah would come in great glory, but he comes as an average man. They believe that he's come to fight their oppressors, but instead he's come to fight sin and death. They believe that the pagans were the problem, but Jesus, they come to understand that Jesus had to come and die for their sins and also the pagans. These were things that they had not thought about. Now, if they had understood their scriptures, they may have understood what we heard read in the Old Testament reading. This is a prophecy of Isaiah that came hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. Speaking of the Messiah saying that there would be no beauty or majesty by which He would be identified. He wouldn't be glorious. That He would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be pierced. And He would be crucified. But the problem was, their own ideas of God prevented them from seeing God. Their own narrative, their own words about who God was prevented them from seeing God. And we face the same challenge today, right? I mean, it may be in your mind, God is loving, accepts people as they are, and wants us to be happy. And so the idea of a God who is righteous and hates sin, or a God that cares more about our holiness than is our happiness, would seem like a very shocking thing. It would be hard to see that God if you're clinging to the first part. Or it might be your idea of God is if I I obey Him and serve Him, only small problems will come into my life, not big problems. And if they do come into my life, they won't stay for long. But what we find with many Christians is big problems come into their lives and they set up camp and they stay for a while. But if you understood the Son of God... And what he faced, that would make sense. And so the question I'd put to you is what about your ideas of God might be causing you to miss him? What preconceptions about who God is might be leading you to miss who he really is? And let's dial it down to this, this, uh, just one area the area of a Messiah or Lord who suffers. How can knowing that God suffers be a helpful thing? Let me suggest three ways. One, is it really helps you be less frustrated in life when you understand that the Lord, the Son of God, suffered. Because one of the things that happens when trouble comes into our lives is we, we begin to think, you know God, it must be pretty easy for You. You're in heaven. You're on a throne. You rule everything. You're removed from all this trouble down here. I mean, that's part of what goes through our head. Even if we don't say it, it's back there. And yet, this is what I'm dealing with day in and day out. This is the world that we're dealing with, whether we're talking about Syria or what i got to face on Monday. But that totally changes when you realize the Son of God left heaven and came to earth. He came to this life that you're experiencing. It's the only faith on earth that teaches that. That God actually left and entered into our suffering. Bore it and wore it. And so if you understand that your Savior suffers, you'll be less frustrated in life. You'll be less disillusioned when you suffer. A second thing is, it helps us with our self-worth. One of the things that happens when we begin to suffer is we feel unfavored. Right? We feel unfavored. We basically look around and we see everybody else that's doing pretty well and they're going through good times and they seem blessed to us. I mean, even if you're not a religious person here, you think that way. The person that's got the really good job and the great body and the good girlfriend and won't be spending Valentine's Day alone, they are blessed in this world. And so when you suffer, you begin to think, I am unfavored until you see that the Son of God, the Most Favored One, the One of whom God said, this is My Son, with Him I am well pleased and I love Him, suffered. And you come to see that My suffering might actually be a sign that God favors Me. As the book of Hebrews would say, it's a sign that we're legitimate children of God because we can endure suffering. Thirdly, what does a suffering Savior teach us Well, it teaches us how much God loves you. How much he loves you. That he would go through a nightmare to have you for his own. That he would be humiliated among men. That he would find himself friendless. That he would be beaten beyond recognition. That he would be separated from the Father that he loved that He would drink in the judgment of God for your sins, and that He would go to hell and back so He could have you as His beloved and have you for eternity. You see, if you don't understand that you have a suffering Savior, you won't really understand how much He loves you. The Apostle Paul, I think, puts this well. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the real change. When does the gas pedal on you following Christ really get depressed? When do you really begin to take off in following Christ? It's when you understand He died for you. He loved you personally. You were in His mind. Your name was on His lips. Your situation was in His heart. That makes the difference between someone that has a vague understanding of who God is and really doesn't do much with their life and one whose life really takes off. So, that's the kind of Messiah Jesus is. But let's move it into the last point. What it means to follow Him. What it means to follow Him. And this should only take an hour or two. So... um, in case you're nervous about any activities after church. Anyway, what it means to follow, uh, what it includes, and why it's worth it. Uh, First of all, what it includes. In summary, what it includes is a life of self-denial and a willingness of total sacrifice. I thought of ways to say that differently. I really struggled to say, how can I say this in a way that's more palpable? This is what Jesus says. A life of self-denial and total sacrifice. Okay? That's what he calls us to. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save us. Save it. Now, he gives us two metaphors to think about this. The first is the idea of take up your cross. Now, in our day and age, right, a cross is uh, seen as something that's beautiful, Uh, it's seen as something that's noble, and something that's inspiring. But in ancient times, uh, you didn't hang a cross around your neck, you were hung on a cross. Right? A cross was Rome's primary tool for not only uh, crucifying the worst of their criminals, but it was public humiliation. In Jesus's day, to be crucified was to be cursed by God and cursed by society. You weren't seen as a victim. People looked and said, You know something? They had it coming. Just like when we're watching a movie and the bad guy really gets it in a bad way, you go, He had it coming. That's what people thought. So Jesus isn't saying take up inspiration. He's saying that. And what that means is to follow Jesus is a willingness not to look good in front of other people. Picking up your cross means a willingness not to look good in the eyes of people, maybe loss of praise, loss of uh, applause, loss of respect, not looking sophisticated in the eyes of a sophisticated city. It may be people look at you and say you're crazy, you're foolish, or you're immoral for those beliefs. It might be a kid who obeys their parents and is made fun of by their friends. That's taking up their cross. It might be you at work, and uh, you catch heat because you're unwilling to spin something before a customer or before an electorate. There's a certain line of integrity that you won't cross, and so you're despised for it. You're pressured for it. It might be you experience same-sex attraction and you don't act upon it. It might be that you're engaged to be married, but you don't live together. And people go, what's wrong with you? You know, you're foolish. Why are you doing this? You're primitive, social rejection. It's not just physical punishment. It's social rejection. I was thinking about uh, the story of a woman, a martyr. Uh, She was an African woman who was a noble woman, educated, upper class, living about 100 years after the apostles were martyred. Her name is Perpetua. Some of you may have heard of her before. And the reason we know stuff about her is because she wrote a diary, and one of the church fathers also wrote about her life. And one of the things about her life that really gets you is, you know, here she was, she was young, in her 20s, married, had a great husband, a kid, but because of her faith in Jesus in the Roman Empire, she is imprisoned and she's sentenced to death. And some of the most harrowing passages of her diary are her father trying to persuade her to recant, throwing himself down on her knees and saying, why are you doing this? Why would you destroy me? Why would you break my heart? Why would you leave your child? Why would you destroy our family? And he was doing this publicly before the Roman tribunal, who then judged and said, why would you do this to your father? Why would you dishonor him? Just make a sacrifice to Rome. You can continue to worship Jesus, but just also make your sacrifice to Rome. And she said, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm a Christian. And I followed Jesus as Lord, and my, my Savior suffered. And she and her slave, together, were thrown in the arena, uh, attacked, and then finally put to death. So taking up one's cross means a willingness to face social outcast. But also, losing one's life, he talks about here. And here, it's not just one's physical life. It's the core of who you are. It's the, it's the dream that drives you. It's the thing that drives your life. Willing to let that go. Willing to let go of maybe the career ambition you've had in your heart. Maybe it's the vision you have that you would one day be married and have a family together. Maybe taking up your crosses, you're having to let that go. Maybe it's the idea that one day I'm going to make enough money, I'm going to have that condo on the beach that I always wanted. Maybe it's letting that go. But losing one's life isn't just life, it's losing that dream of life. That God has given me now again you hear that and we have to ask the question why in the world would anybody become a Christian I mean if you're here and you're not a Christian you're going thanks for this Glenn you've confirmed to me that I'll never become a Christian it sounds like a total downer to me or if you're in the throes of suffering you're like yeah this is what I'm talking about Glenn well I want to get to why it's worth it to close now there are lots of reasons people sacrifice right They might sacrifice for an athletic achievement. They might sacrifice to get into a dress size. They might sacrifice so the next generation of their kids can do better. They might sacrifice for religious discipline. Jesus says, though, this sort of sacrifice has a particular target, and this is it. Those that lose their life and take up the cross for my sake in the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He's not just talking about general sacrificing. For my sake, in the gospel. Now that involves a person and a status. Now we will. We know what it means to make sacrifices for people. Uh, Maybe for a lover. I was thinking back to this song from the '80s by the Scottish band, The Proclaimers. Anybody ever hear The Proclaimers? A couple of you have. This is. This won't fall flat. I think because I'm picking on you know one of their great songs. I, you know, I would walk 500 miles. This is the chorus. I would walk 500 miles, and if you've heard it, you know, it's got a rally. I would walk 500, I'm not going to do any more, but that's, I'm not doing justice. It really gets you, you know. I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more just to be the man that walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. I mean, come on. That's a great lyric, right? We know what it means to sacrifice for a lover. We know what it means to sacrifice for someone that we just idolize. We'll sleep out all night to get tickets, right? Or sleep out all night so we might be able to just see them go in the door. We know what it's like to sacrifice and wait in line for hours and hours to pay tribute to a hero that we honor. We know what it means to give up for a person, a lover, a hero, Someone that's talented, someone that we consider glorious. But all those people that you've experienced, do you understand? They are just a shadow of the Son of God. If you've appreciated that in another person, you have to believe logically if that comes from God, He must be that on steroids. I mean, He is the ultimate lover. He is the ultimate selfless hero. He is the one that's described in, uh, in uh, terms of jewels in the book of Revelation. Jasper, carnelian. He's glorious. He's beautiful. Why would you ever give up everything for that person? Well, you know why. If you really come to know that person, it's worth it. It's the treasure. It's the possession. But it's also giving up for a status. We know what it's like to sacrifice so you can be the Super Bowl champion of the world. Right? Or maybe it is to get on the honor roll as a student. Or maybe it is to work your way to be the employee of the month. Or maybe it is to be a partner in the law firm. We know what it's like to sacrifice hard hours, get no sleep, spend a lot of money, get in debt, whatever it is, so we can get a status. And why do we want that status? Well, we want to feel good about ourselves before the world. Imagine what it's like to be able to stand before the maker of the world and feel good about yourself. Imagine what it's like to stand before the most beautiful person and the more stunning holy creature and have him say, blameless, righteous, splendor. Now, that's something to sacrifice for and give up for. This is something that the Apostle Paul, I think, puts together nicely for us. Now, in this passage, he's talking about all the things that he lived for before. His family name, his achievements, you know, the job title he got, which was Pharisee of Pharisee. All the things that used to drive him until he met Jesus Christ until he met Jesus and this Gospel. And listened to how his reflection changed. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count them as rubbish in order that I may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own, that which comes through faith in Christ rather, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear what he said there? I was pursuing those things before, but I gave them all up because I got a glimpse of Him. The One for whom I was made. I saw Him, and not only that, He gave His life that I might be elevated to the highest status possible. That I might have a righteousness from God. It came to me by Him, by His life, by His grace. My righteousness could do nothing for me. And so, all those things that I was pursuing and I valued, I see as lost now. Not even worth pursuing. And this is the experience that I think Jesus is talking about here. Paul is saying that all the things, and this is the important thing, he not only saw that gospel and his righteousness in Christ, but he said, I came to see that all the stuff that I was holding on to and I was pursuing was actually refuse. It was rubbish. It was worthless. The treasure I was after was like a time bomb. The badge I was looking for was like a diseased blotch. The thing that I thought I loved was actually destroying me and killing me. Because it was preventing me. I mean, we know this, right? We could say in our earthly relationships, I pursued all this stuff and I forgot about relationships. I forgot about the people I loved. How much more so with God? I pursued all this stuff, but I missed out on Him. Or, you know, I went to the world for a sense of righteousness. I hoped that Washington would declare me righteous, Glenn. I hoped that maybe my parents would say, Righteous, well done. But instead, we could hear it from God. The One who made us. I was having lunch with someone. um, I need to make this quick. I was having lunch with someone. And um, their story just reminded me this week. They said... um, you know, I came from a family. I don't know if it was a first-generation American family, but education was everything. And so I worked hard, and I worked hard, and my goal was Harvard, and I got into Harvard. And he said, but when I showed up to Harvard, I realized uh, that the ones didn't, the people that made it weren't the smart ones. It was the rich kids. I mean, the rich kids really had the future, so I thought, you know, i got to get rich. So he began to commute back and forth from Harvard to D.C. And he started a real estate business. And that real estate business actually boomed in the early 2000s. He found his name in the Washington Post. But his faith was really just a footnote in his life. And so he ran through education. He ran through status. He ran through money. And he found himself before God. And he said it changed everything. It changed the way I thought about my career. It changed the way I did my career. It changed my life. And now I'm in the community of God. Now I live for Christ. I've taken up his cross. And so for you and I, this is the glory. And Jesus gives us a hint here when he says, you know, uh, some of you will not taste death until the Son of Man comes. And some people thought, well, is that Jesus saying he's going to return in that age? And then he was wrong. No. Every time you find that passage, it comes before the account we're going to look at next week, the transfiguration. The power he's talking about is the glory they'll see when he's transfigured, and what's hinted in the transfiguration we'll see is the resurrection. But he's giving them a foretaste. There is glory to come for those that take up his cross. I want to end by just asking you in your bulletin, you'll see this quote from Bonhoeffer on the first page. Bonhoeffer was martyred for his faith, took up his cross to the point of death. But I love how he not only talks about the cost he talks about the cost of following Christ, but he talks about the communion, the communion we have with Christ. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering for which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. I love what he says about it's not the end, it's the beginning. The only way, my friends, that we can endure this call, it is such a high call, is if we are in communion with him. That prize, that gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, Lord, we uh, shrink back, we know that you weren't exaggerating. The testimony of the church tells us that. We indeed may lose everything. We may indeed lose our lives. But we also hear the joy in your disciples' words, the joy, even in modern day, sufferers for you. I pray, O Lord, as you call us to pick up that cross, would you increase our communion with you Would you help us to see you in the gospel? If we can see that, Lord, we will endure anything. In Christ's name, amen.